they typically ask me, do you have everything you need? Because I'm likely to show up here without bulletin. So Tammy does that. They do that. Thank you. Let me pray, and then we will stand to read from the beautiful scripture of this day. All praise, glory, honor, and blessing be unto you, our gracious, loving Father in heaven. How we rejoice in thy initiating sovereign will, sending the eternal, only begotten Son of thy love to this fallen plant to become also man, taking to himself a second nature, the first eternally uncreated, the second created by thy spirit in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary, and this for our salvation. Thy chosen Son was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and as the second Adam received in his body of flesh the blow deserved by thy chosen children, gifted to thy beloved Son. We are in awe and loving reverence for thee upon every thought of thee. Now, sweet Jesus, lover of our souls, through thy Holy Spirit, illumine our minds to know like an epicenter thy truth. Soften our ever stiff while in this body of flesh wills to yield to the good that you have willed towards us and refresh with great joy the vision of thy beauty that we may gaze with rapturous joy upon your blessed smiling face, our dear Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. Stand with me. As I turn to this, and from there we'll go to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> you will recall that Acts 19 finds the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, western seacoast of modern-day Turkey. He stays there. We'll discuss that more but this is significant as we began to see last week. And Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the followers, the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia, modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. From there to Colossians chapter 1. Just a few pages over. Verses 6 through 7. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 6 through 7. He is speaking of the faith they have, verse 4, in Christ Jesus, the love for all the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up in heaven, which they had heard of in the gospel. Verse 6 which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even in you also since the day you heard and really understood epigenoskis, really understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful 
diakonos, deacon, minister of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Here is the therefore, the imperative which always follows gospel indicatives. What Christ has done, now live like this. Chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. The word of God. You may be seated. To read Colossians, to chart what it speaks of in terms of the gospel expansion is a joyous, abounding wonder at the grace of God as it moved out across the ancient world. From in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis. As the Father has sent me, so send I you, John, to set apart for me Paul and Silas for the work to which I have called them, Acts 13. And so Paul, on his second missionary journey, is then, you will recall, guided by a vision prompted by God of a man from Macedonia, ancient Macedonia, modern-day Greece, to cross the Aegean Sea from Asia Minor to Macedonia, from Turkey to modern-day Greece. And through this, the gospel advances for the first time to the sons of Japheth, to Europe. And then from there, Philippi to Athens and Corinth, from where Paul and his companions board ship, sailing back eastward toward Turkey, landing in Ephesus, western coast of modern-day Turkey. And in Ephesus, Paul stayed, the scripture tells us in Acts 19, over two years, both, did you catch it, reasoning and persuading reasoning and persuading both Jews and Greeks with the result that all who lived in Asia, Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. Now these words, reasoning and persuading, are very suggestive and I purpose to not describe them last week because of the emphasis upon growth by the very real epicenter-type knowledge from God. But reasoning. We get our word dialogue from this Greek word, which has a more definitive meaning of getting a conclusion across. Dialogue, I believe, is the actual transliteration of the Greek dialogue, our English word. But the focus of this Greek word is to get a conclusion across the word persuading, which means to win over, to win over, or move someone by persuasion to do something, to convince by argumentation. It's a wondrous testimony to the truth of original sin that children come out of the womb excelling at the art of persuasion. Do I hear an amen? They are quite capable of pitting one opponent on the stand against the other and thereby winning and persuading all that really is in their best interest that they have another well, clear is the intent of such 
persuading gospel dialogue to bring the person to conversion. Now that's looking at from the horizontal scale. It's clearly referenced Acts 19 that what's taking place and referenced also in Colossians 1, his citation of Epaphras, he really focuses upon the horizontal scale. Epaphras came, Epaphras shared the gospel. He was preaching and teaching, presumably. But he was reasoning and persuading if he was doing what he had heard in Ephesus. But who's behind all this? Well, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is using secondary tools, opening blind eyes by God's work of regeneration. So Epaphras regenerated, probably in Ephesus, after some highly probable grooming, mentoring by Paul and his companions, returns home five days' walk to Colossae toward the interior. And gloriously, it was through persuading dialogue, preaching and teaching by Paul that Epaphras was a, this is Colossians 3 language, a new man in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, a new creation in Christ. Once back in Colossae, <clears throat> Epaphras begins reasoning and persuading those who are in lost, sinful behaviors and lifestyles. That's key. You say, duh, said it. That's key. Think about it. When Epaphras goes back to Colossae, he begins reasoning and persuading with people who are caught up in lifestyles that we just read about. And they're very sinful and dysfunctional. They're not God's design. So thus, some of those, the Holy Spirit regenerates savingly through epicenter-like encounters, birthing a church as he brings Colossian believers to really and richly know the grace of God in truth. And thus some of those in the domain of darkness, and I'm thinking of Paul's language now in Colossians 1, 13, if you glance at it, I trust your Bibles are open. Some of those in the domain of darkness were transferred by God the Father into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And the transformation of lives and behaviors was wondrous. Now we read through that last week. This is chapter 3. From sexual immorality, what's that? Sex with anyone who's not your husband or wife. And it's a male or female from the beginning. All sexual encounters outside of marriage are sexual immorality, impurity. If sexual immorality is the action, impurity is the thought. Catch that. You sow a thought, reap an action. Start watching the wrong kind of stuff that you know your Lord and Savior wouldn't watch. Start listening to the wrong kind of songs. Start looking at the wrong kind of pictures. You're sowing thoughts. You will reap action. It's going to happen. Sow a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. Now you got a problem. So a habit, reap a character. Now you aren't just committing sin. Now you are a sinful man. Now you haven't just committed an act of evil. Now you are, by definition, an evil man. So a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. 
So from sexual immorality, I'm in chapter 3, any sexual contact outside of marriage, to impurity. See, you can do the impurity in your mind on your cell phone. It's not outward, so to speak. Passion, evil desire, covetousness. What's that? Wanting what he didn't give you. <laughs> oh, that's big. I cover every day. Wanting what he didn't give you. Be content. Covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander. Obscene talk, profanity, cursing, foulness, filthiness, lying. From those things, transformations have occurred in Colossae toward holiness, compassionate hearts, kindness. This is all chapter 3. Humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, putting up with each other, forgiveness, love, and peace. And this reasoning and persuading that took place around the preaching and teaching was the norm for the church. This was the norm for the church. It was the church's M.O., modus operandi, mode of operation. This is how the church lived out its life in a sinful culture. Observe the same pattern in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I'm going to read it again. Open your Bibles to it. Scott just read it to us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that appears hopeless like a condemnatory word from God. But the next verse is the gospel. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, pronounced holy positionally in Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the spirit of our God. Now, if your Bible's not open, you're not going to track with me, so just listen hard. The significance of 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And I just camped on chapter 6, verse 9 for a reason. The significance of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is the uh, categories of sin the Spirit of God identifies in this one verse and which have such clear application in our day. They are sexual in nature. Look at it, verse 9. All but one. Five nouns are used. One noun says idolatry. But the other four are sexual in nature. And if I may do a time out. You see the connection with sanctity of life? Why do you think abortion is even such a big issue? It's because of sins like this that have to be covered up. You have to destroy the evidence. That's why that hideous building exists in Fairview Heights. It's nothing but destruction of evidence. You understand the connection between the two. But back to this, because I've said, and if you're looking at your ESV, you surely are perplexed and about to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I don't see five named. 
But there are five named corruptions which follow the words, do not be deceived, four of which are sexual in nature. And so the ESV reads, let's count them, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. That's not five. That's four. You say, what's going on? Well, let's read what's printed in your bulletin, New American Standard. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Oh, five nouns now. In fact, the RSV, the King James, the New King James, New American Standard, translate all five nouns. I'll come back to that. In the Greek, in the Greek, there are five nouns. Shockingly, most modern translations turn the fourth and fifth noun into a verbal men who practice homosexuality, which is bad translation because it's a noun. There are five nouns named. Why did they not just translate all five nouns? Observe that this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if you understand the five nouns, describes the makeup of every homosexual and lesbian relationship because there's always a man and a woman. Or said more accurately, one who initiates and one who responds. And the Greek makes this clear. One is the initiator, one is the responder. Some translations deliberately do not want to make it clear. Because in today's culture, this issue is a very real hot potato. And so many translations cave in by offering a softer, less specific verbal idea but they're troubled with the flow of Romans 1 because you can't quite do the same dance. Romans chapter 1, look at verses 24 through 27. Scott read this as well, but glance at it with me. Romans 1, 24 deals with one form of sexual immorality, 24 and 5. Romans 1, 26 and 7 deals with another form of sexual immorality. And you can see the text, 26. <clears throat> For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing the literal rendering is committing the shameless deed and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And these crystal clear words breathed out by the same Holy Spirit who breathed out the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 20. God speaks in Genesis 5 and it says, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
He created them male and female. And he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. God made two sexes, two genders. And you are what you were at birth. Genesis 5 uses the second of six Hebrew terms for man and the counterpart word for woman. And we'll not go into it here, but the meaning of the two Hebrew terms is quite clear as they anatomically correspond to each other. It's very clear how God views gender. God made two genders, and you are what you were at birth. Now think with me, because what Acts 19 describes as reasoning and persuading, which actively occurred around the preaching and teaching of the gospel, took place in both Colossae and ancient Corinth. This is the method of operation for the gospel's advance. This is how churches that are faithful to their sovereign operate. And clear it is that this reasoning and persuading will involve topics like sex, sexuality, gender identity, and the whole LGBTQ movement. It has to read Colossians 3. So the New Testament records conversion of men and women out of dark practices like this as they were brought by the Father into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And these blessed conversions involved reasoning and persuading, which circled the around preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which deals necessarily with both sin and the Savior, because there is no understanding of the Savior unless you understand your sinful need of the Savior. But we increasingly live in a culture that doesn't like this. Is that surprise you? We increasingly live in a culture that does not approve. In fact, our brothers and sisters in Canada are imminently in the now facing this. As of January 8th, Canada's parliament criminalized what it has called, labeled, conversion therapy conversion therapy. Now what's conversion therapy? Talking with anybody about issues like we just described. In the preamble of the bill, it asserts that the belief that gender identity and expression must conform to the gender assigned at birth is a myth. So according to Canadian law, the belief in God's design for marriage and human sexuality is now seen as a myth. And the definition is intentionally broad. Thus, it can be used against any pastor, against any TE, teaching elder, or ruling elder who speaks or teaches against the very sins of darkness named in 1 Corinthians 6, Colossians 3, Leviticus 20, and we just keep adding Scripture on top of Scripture. So, as of January 8th in Canada, it is against the law to do what I've done so far today. And could be arrested. 
quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. This is a catchphrase in our day, a term used to marginalize the advance of the gospel. Conversion therapy is simply the governing authority's marginalizing phrase describing what our Bibles call reasoning and persuading around preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. You say, but that's Canada. We're not Canada. In West Lafayette, Indiana, five hours away from here, where Faith Biblical Counseling Ministry has a counseling center. The local city council is seeking to pass an ordinance that would in effect criminalize biblical counseling with minors when discussing human sexuality. This ordinance will have a threatened fine of $1,000 per day enforceable by the local police department. Now, question, how would, how did the early church deal with threatened suppression of the advance of the gospel? Well, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is Acts 4, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all in them, who through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christos. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do, catch it. This is what a Reformed church understands. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All these adversaries to the gospel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants protection. Oh, no. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Hmm. Doctrine. Consider this state or government. We've glanced at this before, but we need to hear it again. The earliest mention of governing authorities is in Genesis 9, where God prescribes capital punishment. He says, surely I'll require your lifeblood. From every beast I'll require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. You say, what's he talking about? Next verse. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. 
So capital punishment is first established in Genesis 9. It doesn't matter if it was a beast that killed somebody or it was somebody like Cain that killed somebody. By man, the murderer's blood must be shed. And this finds expression in the Mosaic law throughout. Romans 13, 1 through 4 is the New Testament counterpart. Turn with me, please, to Romans 13, 1 through 4. And here we have Paul saying, let every one, every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. See, that's divine statement on what the state government is supposed to do. Doesn't always do it. But verse 3, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. The government is a minister, a diakonos of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So the state is a minister of God with the power of the sword. And what is the state? In the words of Rush Dooney, reformed thinker, the government or state is one of those angelic powers of this age which is always threatened by demonization, that is, by the temptation of making itself an absolute. This is the danger for governing authorities. Whenever a state denies God on his throne, the state will seek to sit on that throne itself. And such a state will deify itself in terms of rights and powers that it has assumed. And yet the reality is that such a state demonizes itself. Read Ephesians 6. It's rulers and principalities in the air they're over. Well, the layman's version is the state or government exists to protect the innocent and punish the evildoer as heaven's instrument of justice deputized, providentially placed by the most high king of heaven. That's what governing authority is. What about the church? If the state is the instrument of God's justice, the church is the instrument of God's grace. The state administers justice. The church administers grace and mercy. Any state that steps into the realm of grace and mercy has usurped the sphere of the church. So in the preaching of the gospel, God has by grace gathered up sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. He has made sin and death his own. Thus, he has not merely acquitted man, but for all time and eternity has set him free to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the blessed church is that body of chosen children whose lives are hidden with Christ in God.
God. Well, what then is the responsibility of the state to the church? First Timothy 2, you will recall, we looked at that before. Here is First Timothy 2. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, which is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Observe that it is only on condition that such authority exists that we can lead a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. But observe in 1 Timothy 2 that the purpose of this is that the church might fulfill its mandate of extending the gospel through reasoning and persuading around the preaching and teaching. And so we pray for a state that might be such that we may advance the gospel. But because this freedom of the church can only be guaranteed through the existence of the governing authority, there is no alternative but that the church on its side guarantees the existence of the state or government through its prayers. Who does God have pray for Job's friends? Who does God have pray for Sodom and Gomorrah? It is the church praying for the state that God looks to, to protect, to undergird, to administer the gospel to the government. So prayer but for the bearers of state authority belongs to the very existence of the church. But think carefully. It is a reality that the state could make use of its position to honor evil and punish good. That's what's happening in Canada. That's what's being threatened in Lafayette, Indiana. The church can live under a governing authority that is beginning to use its God-granted powers not to bless the church, but to hinder the church. And the honor that the state then owes to the church in such a situation consists in the suffering of the followers of Christ in one way or another. Because the state, the government, will fulfill by God's providence its ordained purpose. To challenge that is to argue that God is not sovereign over his works. And what this does, my brothers and sisters, is it drives us back to a sovereign Father in heaven who oversees all things, even the purposed, ordained slaying of his own son by the governing authorities. We trust him. Our lives are in his hand, not in the hands of the state of Illinois, not in the hands of the federal government. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now observe how the state, the Roman government, fulfilled its divine purpose with Jesus the Messiah, with the early church repeatedly. 
and for the sake of the freedom to preach the gospel, the church expects that the state will be a true church, a true state, and will thus create an immense justice. But even when this expectation is not fulfilled, the church still honors God's appointed governing authorities by praying the gospel of Jesus Christ over them, all the while obeying God rather than men. Bottom line, the state exists by divine doctrine to punish the evildoer and protect the innocent. That's the reason for government. But even if government corrupts its purpose, the church is still responsible to advance the gospel and pray for the governing authorities which were established by God. Now in Colossae, Men and women had been, were being transferred out of the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of the Father's love. And this involved, 1-6, an epicenter real knowledge of God's grace and truth. In 1-9, it involved an epicenter real knowledge of his will in the gospel. In 110, this involved bearing fruit and growing by because of this epicenter-like real knowledge of God. And chapter 2, 2, the joy of full assurance of understanding, which resulted in an epignosis, a real rich knowledge of God's mystery, Christ Jesus himself. Application. This is Sinclair, and it struck me when he said it. Several years back I heard it. But isn't it wondrously amazing to live in a cultural milieu that bears such striking similarity to the culture in which Christ first built his church? Do you realize that? We live in a day and age that looks more like the New Testament age and culture than ever before. That makes this book more user-friendly. I can understand issues of suffering, issues of providential control, issues of standing firm against tyranny. And understand that Christ said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. We are already victorious eternally whose lives are hidden with Christ in God the Father. Second application, dialogue and persuasion. Conversational witnessing. What is it? Well, fundamentally, you must be like Jesus. You've got to be a man or a woman who's more utterly focused than self. If you're a self-focused person when you're with somebody, maybe a first encounter or somebody that you're at work with, who are you going to talk about? Well, you'll talk about yourself all the time. And you probably tend to do that with anyone you talk to. Conversation usually results and goes back to self. But if you're an other-focused person, then when you're sitting with somebody at work, somebody at church, somebody at a family gathering, at a restaurant, you are a selfless person, and you want to know them, not express your thoughts, and so you use open-ended questions. And you ask for their assistance. Like Jesus, John 4, could I have a drink of water? Could you get me some more coffee, please, waitress? So that you can talk, so that you can dialogue. First Peter 3.15 
tells us always be ready to give a reason to everyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. Now, caveat, why would anyone ask you for the reason for the hope that you've got? Well, God will often allow his servant to go through hard times. And one of the blessed results of this is he'll then guide people who need to know Jesus across your path. Are you watching for them? Be ready for them. Third, pray for the person, pray for the people you cross paths with, then watch and wait. I didn't do it every day, but more often than not, as I would walk in to the prison compound, my prayer would be, Father, lead me straight to the man that you want me to talk to today. And then I would proceed with my day. And I typically would find one or two, sometimes three, very meaningful gospel conversations. Always be more focused on the other than you are on expressing your thoughts. Fourth, Acts 18, Paul tells, God tells Paul, in Corinth, don't be afraid here. You go on preaching. For I have many people in this city. <laughs> the joy of meeting a new child of God that you have reached out to and engaged in reasoning and persuading about the things of Jesus in your life. Let me pray. Oh, blessed God, our Father, with hearts overflowing with thanksgiving, we praise you for delivering us out of the kingdom domain of darkness and placing us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We praise you for grace and peace. We praise you for thy gifted faith to us, enabling us to trust into the Messiah. And we thank you for the growth of the gospel in our day. Oh, Father, deliver from darkness men and women, boys and girls who are around us, guiding them to thy joy in Jesus even here in our midst. Bless us, we pray, with thy epicenter-type knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding that we might be a church and people that bears good fruit and good deeds and all with vigorous growth because of our growing love for and adoration for thee. Lord, look upon the governments of this earth and advance your gospel through your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.